Thanks for tuning into the Live It podcast. My name is Jason Walton, the host. I'm really excited about the content that we're going to be sharing because it's going to be extremely helpful to entrepreneurs and to other high achievers. As entrepreneurs, we can choose to engage in producing a good or a service that makes the world a better place, enriching the lives of everyone associated with it. Let's not settle for anything less. In addition, I'm gonna regularly challenge each of us to increase our awareness of the needs of people around us, and then to boldly take action. We're gonna make the world a better place, not just through the goods and services we produce, and not just through the jobs we create, but by flooding the world with love and kindness. The information my guests are gonna be sharing on the podcast is gonna be based on our life experiences. It's not meant to be warranted as absolute truth. We don't stand behind the accuracy of the things that we're sharing, sorry. Feel free to fact check and do some homework on your own. It'll go a long way and it'll be a very useful exercise. Thanks for being a part of the Live It community. I hope you embrace and enjoy the journey. Thanks for joining the Jason Walton Live It podcast. Today, our guest is one of my partners and also one of my best friends. Uh, Tim Hedrick. Tim and I have worked together for a long time. He has now built a book of business in pest control that's around $80 million and it's it's growing fast. Tim is a seasoned entrepreneur. He has a lot of great advice on how to scale a business and uh, how to run a premium brand. So Tim, thanks for uh, taking time to be here. It's early in the morning today. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited. I watch your podcast all the time and grateful to be on it. You're so busy. That when I tried to like schedule it, the only time we could do it is to is is to get here super early in the morning. Yes, yes. There's a lot of things I got going on, but uh, glad to be here. So, Tim, I said we've known each other a long time. How, how long has it been? It's been 17, 18 years. I mean, I, I met you in wow. 2004, actually. Yeah. And I started working with you in 2005. Wow. So, that's a long time. Yeah. Started in Atlanta, then eventually went to, to San Diego. Now, when I first met you, I remember a very cool, young, <laughs> extremely good looking, which you still are, uh, guitar playing phenom that that competed to become a member of the Battle of the Bands, or was it? Yeah, we back in the day, I, I did Guitars Unplugged here at BYU. Um, you know, over two hundred bands tried out. I got in, and uh, how many know, got in? Only eighteen. Okay. Yeah, got in and uh, I got to play with the Neon Trees. I mean, they don't know who I am. I know who they are, but uh, fun to say I shared a stage. So did you do like really well? Place even yeah. top? Yeah, I, w- I was uh, I was on the news, you know, uh, front page of the Daily Universe uh, here at BYU. Uh, and it was awesome. Yeah, I had a good time and fun competing. So I think a lot of people don't know this about you, but like you are extremely gifted in songwriting. And I play guitar. And Tim, I still listen to your music. Like I have it on my playlist. I love love the songs that you wrote and sung. Thank you. I, I almost did that for my career, actually. I, I, I know you know that. Um, I was pursuing songwriting. I mean, I was going around. I had a few record labels that were starting to get interested in me. And I, you know, reached a point where I had to make a choice. Do I want to go pursue music and take that the distance? Or do I want to go the business route? And I went the business route. <laughs> yeah, you still are going the business yeah. route. Yeah, well, and I still do music. I mean, I still yeah. I still write music. I still, I mean, I play it for my kids, uh, you know, every night. I mean, I, I play guitar every day. Just something I love to do. And I knew I could keep doing that, you know? And so I didn't, I that need to have it be my career, I I just became extremely passionate about what I was doing here actually with you. Yeah. And I knew I didn't have to give that up. So I, I didn't, kept doing it. I love your music because it, it seems that you were always writing on what was on your mind or your feelings. And so- 
you, you, you had a friend I know that passed away and I know you wrote a song about that. Yeah. that that's extremely moving. And, and I also really like the, the songs that you wrote for your wife, Kelsey. I don't know if you wrote them for her, but it was just the feelings that you were feeling as you were courting and dating. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I think that most people should listen to them because I think that you can connect with that sort of uncertainty, but also excitement. And anyway, I just think your music's phenomenal. No, thank you. Yeah. I, uh, that's funny when you're writing music, sometimes you think you're hiding behind your songs. Yeah. It turns out I wasn't, I guess. One of the things I love about music is that it just an outlet for all, some people say music is therapy. Like I really believe that. I mean, I, I turned to music and I wrote out my feelings. That's how I dealt with stuff. And Found, just found out who I was through that process. And um, honestly, it's helped having a creative side and a creative outlet. Yeah. I help what will round me out, I feel like. so. <laughs> I remember staying at your house recently in Dallas. <laughs> and the, the guest bedroom is, is, I think it might share a wall with your office. It does, yeah. And uh, I woke up to this awesome music and came around the corner. Yeah, you were in there just getting your day going. <laughs> That's right. Just drumming the guitar and <laughs> yeah. singing some notes and penning out. I think you were in the middle of writing a song. I was. Yeah. Music is a, music's a huge, important part of my life. I, I haven't actually shared it with a ton of people in a long time. Um, it's a shame. Yeah, I probably should. I yeah, probably should. I think so too. Well, I am flattered that you chose to work with me and be a part of our organization, but what, uh, and be an integral part of building it, I might add. Um, why? Like what happened at what point did you say, I want to be an entrepreneur? Like first, at what point did you decide to be an entrepreneur? And then why? So I think that, you know, for me, I, I didn't start out saying that. That was never no. my intentions. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't come. I had no evidence that that was like a thing growing up. Um, I didn't come from a family of entrepreneurs. I mean, my, you know, my dad worked in a steel mill, uh, you know, I'm from Ohio, Northeastern Ohio. And so this idea that I would go open, start a business, partner with someone that was all very foreign to me. Um, I, I grew up having a lot of the good stuff in life that, you, you know, parents that loved me, um, great, moral teachers, um, a really tight knit family, all the, all the things that are most important I had. And there was just this one, there was this one piece, this financial piece, um, that I was kind of looking to solve, um, you know, one way or another. And I was open to lots of things, whether that's working for someone, finding a career. And, you know, I went to school at BYU and got my degree in marketing. You know, I thought I was going to go do marketing at the corporate level. That, that was what I thought. I was competing against enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which is a yeah. great company. Like, no, yeah, they a had phenomenal a phenomenal company. They had a management we training still program. Work with them. Yeah, I remember their their whole pitch was, "Hey, you can come work with me, and you can work in six, seven years, make three hundred grand a year." And you know, that's a that's a lot of money. Yeah, like, three hundred grand a year is a ton of money. Um, and so I was I was pursuing those avenues, and I. I think that the most important thing that I had decided early on that allowed me because a lot of people. I think the thing is they miss their opportunity because they're not primed to recognize it, right? Yeah. So just like when you when you buy a blue car, you see blue cars everywhere. Um, <laughs> the decision that I had made that I knew I made for sure was that I was going to be a millionaire. I was going to do it. And I was open to any and all ways that that was possible. And the reason that I wanted that was because I had this terrifying like nightmare that – I was one day going to go to McDonald's and my parents were going to be 85 years old and serving me in that line. I don't, I, I don't know why that's like a thing. A thought I have is like going to McDonald's at 11 PM. I don't recommend that to anyone. And have you ever gone there and someone's working there who you're like, man, shouldn't, shouldn't they be take, shouldn't they have a better retirement than this? And I just was worried about that being a scenario for my parents. And I certainly didn't want that for myself. And so deciding early on that I was going to chase that outcome and 
that made me open to any and all opportunities to do that. And so I think that was the most important decision I made early on. So big plug for your parents who I know really well. They're two of the most amazing people. And some of the decisions that you made of why you're standing on their shoulders is 11 kids. Uh, yeah. As you have 10 siblings, there's 10 Hedrick children plus you. Yes. Making it 11. And your parents somehow managed to be extremely involved in the community, extremely involved in, in their church and other organizations, and still made time for each one of you kids. Yeah, it was incredible. I, I don't know how they did it. I honestly, I, I don't know how they did it. I remember at one point, my dad, because we he had seven kids in at, that had baseball games um, at, at the same day. And at one point, there were four games going on at the same time. And so we were in a field. My dad went and sat in the middle of this giant sprawling field. So on the, with, uh, on the opposite side of like the center field fence. Yeah. So all the center. Connected. Yeah. There were four fields. Yeah. He's in the middle in a chair on a megaphone cheering for all of his children <laughs> And their games concurrently. Sherry, so from center field, he's yelling out to the at home plate or at third yeah, base. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. I, I look back and I, I think the discipline that that took yeah. to go do what he did, you know, serve in his church, serve in the community, because uh, he is. He's literally a leader. I mean, he was out fundraising for like the school, the school levies and like the money that they needed to go. I mean, he's called on in the community to do that. So having kids and I don't know how he did it. It was amazing. Yeah. When I met you, you never expressed any frustration or thoughts that you didn't have stuff when you were younger. Like that, that's just not something you said. You just talked about your rich upbringing and thank heavens your dad made the decisions and your mom made the decisions she made. And uh, so it's not like you were trying to go say, hey, my parents did it wrong. No, they did it right. Not, not, not at all. In fact, I, I find that that's one of the things that I'm constantly fighting against is I think of how right my parents did things. And how maybe some of the decisions I've made as an entrepreneur, especially the ones that cost time, I'm always trying to gauge that against, you know, what's the cost of that, you know, to my kids and to my family. And anyway. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. So, um, so, okay. So, you decided that you wanted to become a millionaire. And the uh, only thing I would add is that I think that you said that I don't believe. Is you said, I was willing <laughs> to do anything at all costs, no matter what it was. To achieve that goal. And I don't think you were actually willing to do it. Yeah, I think I meant I was open to all opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. I was open to all the opportunities because, you know, you never know, you never know where that's going to come from. And I think um I I didn't want to miss when the opportunity knocked. That was my concern. And I agree with you, you know, where I think you would go with that of the things I wasn't open to. Yeah. This comes into like the story of why I'm even with you. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was looking to do so my first summer where I was looking to do summer sales, I started interviewing around a, a bunch of different companies. And there was a lot. I mean, I interviewed a lot. I had a cousin that was selling for um, not Eclipse, a Clark Pest Control back yeah. in the day. I had um, the guy above me uh, in, in the, I was living up in Rexburg in their, in their student housing. The guy above me started Pinnacle Security. Wow. Uh, throwback to that. Um, and I had a lot of people recruiting me. Um, and, and I went to their meetings. I mean, I also for the pizza, you know, a lot of guys did that back then. Um, and I was, I just found really quick. I was asking different questions. I mean, I was very, very concerned. You know, I, I went and served a mission for my church two years. I went to Brazil. Um, and I felt like, man, I really became the best version of myself ever from that experience. And I was very concerned because I had a couple of friends that had gone out and done summer sales yeah. and they just kind of came back and they were different people and not in a good way. Like it was very clear to me that yeah. summer sales had changed them. And, um, and it was in, it was evident to me in how they talked about people 
and how their their views and their attitudes with their relationships towards money that was most concerning to me. And I also had a few friends that had gone out and they quit. And the reason they quit was because they just felt like what they were being trained to do was in conflict with their morality. And so the, the culture they were immersed in. Oh yeah. They yeah. go out and they just, they, they would literally go out and they were with leaders that they had been, you know, they were on missions. They were in, you know, good people that they had followed in previous jobs and yep. roles and services. And they were being taught, Oh, go do this. And they're like, Whoa, this is that that's very, you know, that's not who you are. That's not who I've associated with you. That's not okay. Yeah. A hundred percent. And so for me, I just, I didn't want to do that. I, I only had one summer to make money too. And I knew for sure. The one thing I couldn't do was that if I went out for a summer and I found that to be in conflict with my value system, I was going to leave. Yeah. I, I would never put up with that. And so when I was going around, I was asking questions about, you know, what are you teaching your people? What's your service like? Um, why does it, why is that important to you? Like, and, and, and when you, when I ask you, why should I sell for you? Your answer to that is it tells me everything about you. And, um, that, I think that's, I don't know that that's normal. I don't think that's what a lot of people were asking. I mean, you interviewed a lot. Did you find that being a priority? Uh, you're talking about it as if it's the past. So still to this day, <laughs> yeah. um, I find that in our industry, especially in our little corner of the world, if when you're recruiting in this, where we're near just two or three universities, that there's just tremendous danger and that people should be extremely careful. And yes, I find that people are asking the wrong questions. And more specifically, I'm concerned that, as you said, relationships that you have with people that you trust, in your case, people who you, you served in a, a mission with your with your church, and so there's people that you gained the trust from a religious standpoint and became your friends and you had the respect. With other people, it's just maybe older brothers and sisters or people, maybe it was their brother's friend, but people who are respect. And then they sit down and teach you something all of a sudden that is why it's okay to tell a white lie yeah, and rationalize it. And where I think that that's dangerous is because it's so easy to be corrupted by the people that you trust. Oh, yeah. And so so that's that's the biggest danger, the thing that for 30 years I have found the most alarming in our industry is the corruption of the best of our youth at scale. Yeah. That that once you start running around and teaching that the first things that are coming out of your mouth are money, 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 money. That and without ever pausing to think, hey, just going and making a bunch of money when you're young, that could be really destructive. I mean, like really destructive, right? And not only that, but when we're taught to use people as a means to an end, just because it's in my best interest that the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And it's been my experience that you then treat everybody as a means to an end. And over time, uh, over time, it's like you said, you meet people who've got off and done a summer sales program and you feel like you want to take a shower or wash your hands afterwards. You just you just can feel it. And it's it's a measure of selfishness, pride, greed, um, and misplaced priorities and values. I mean, it can be, right? If if it's, I think our industry has just done a lot. Of, I think it still is doing a lot of that. And, um, but it's particularly dangerous when the people who you trusted and respected the most start rationalizing to you why it's okay 
to take advantage of others, to treat them as a means to an end, and why this simple white lie that you told doesn't really hurt anyone. Yeah, it advantaged you, but it didn't really hurt anyone. And if five of your best friends think it's okay, then it must be. It's like you, as if you could you could vote morality or unchanging principles up, put it up to a vote. Yeah, you can't. I, no, I and I. It's interesting too because I remember when I got to interview with you um, and my roommate set up that interview. You were the you blew my mind because your lead in was actually talking about this. It's exactly this, and you were the first person that I had ever heard ever even bring that into the equation. It makes me want to cry, and not not because you're saying I said it first, because you're saying I was the only one. <laughs> you were. That's just not right. It isn't. No, no, it's not. It's not at all. You were the only one, and I. Th- the only thing that I've seen change actually in the last thirty years, well, twenty years since I've been doing this, um, is that other because as we have right, we talk about this a lot in our business, yeah. and it attracts talented, good people. Right. Yeah. That's who works here, and so other people have started to try and copy that. Right, they're saying the words, but I've noticed that their actions are still the same. So not, not everyone, but you're saying you see that. Across <laughs> I, I see, yeah, I we see can't, commonality. We're not paint the whole industry that way, right? But uh, yeah, that's fair. I, I think, I think what I, what I see is it's just like when someone sees a sales pitch that works, yeah. they all try to mimic that. Yeah, and I, I guess I've seen a trend of maybe mimicking. Oh, let's talk about let's talk about morality, but without the substance there, it's uh, it's not. I mean, it's empty. Yeah, I, I had a another leader in our industry who will go unnamed say to me one time that, that they, they realized that recruiting became the easiest when they realized that revelation was for sale. Oh, geez. It's like an actual quote. Yeah. At meaning that if I offer enough, I can get anyone to do anything. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I, I do wish that parents and, and, and youth who were, who were young college age, they're going to go do a program would consult more with their parents. And I wish that the, I wish the parents would do a better job, of really looking to see, to make sure that their kids or loved ones are going to a principal-centered environment, whatever that environment is, that it's principal-centered, to get involved with what's being said in the recruiting process, to be involved with what they're actually being trained how to do, uh, the quality of the good or service you know that they're that they're representing. I think that those are the healthy things. You know. Anyway, I, 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 I veer. I was asking why you, you you just hit my 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 sensitive spot. Hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. But but I think what I'm hearing you say is like you connected on that way. I did yeah. instantly. Yeah, instantly. The, w- once I heard you talk about that, it was very. I mean, that's why I ended up here. I mean, it was obvious for me. Do you remember any specific specifics of that or how you felt? Because all you said is yeah. I was talking about that. Maybe you can elaborate on what that was. Well, so my the thing that drew my attention the most is that you started with the little things that I hadn't actually considered. So, you know, one of the things is very common when you're selling something door to door, you you get a sale or you have a customer in the neighborhood is you start to reference, "Hey, I'm taking care of Joe, your right? Neighbor. Take care of your neighbor." And you you brought up this simple idea of the the slippery the slippery slope of how easy it is to become dishonest without even realizing it, such as how many doors can you continue to say that I'm servicing your neighbor before that becomes untrue? And again, I you know th- that's just a really what's most important to me is that that question is being asked. Yes, right. It's that thought exercise um, to create a culture where that's being asked. That you're challenging yes. yourself. The words are coming out of your mouth in real time. Yes, because most people do become dishonest on accident early on, and then it works. And then it once <laughs> because they've done it so many times, they get accustomed and numb to it, and then it gets a little worse. And that's what you call the slippery slope. Yeah, I feel like integrity is never neutral. You're either getting better at it because you're proactive, or you're getting worse because because you're not focusing on it. Yeah. So um, I. 
you brought that up and that really grabbed my attention because I was thinking of the obvious things like, oh yeah, don't, don't lie to someone and say that it's not an agreement, right? right. Which I've seen people do. Um, but you took me to a whole nother level of proactive honesty, like proactive integrity and uh, that I had never even thought of. So you changed my paradigm on what that even meant. And it was what I was seeking. But that is how it happens most of the time, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, it's, it either happens because you're, you're, you're doing it on an accident or you're in a training situation and people are training you and you're like, hey, is that really right? And the people go, oh, no, it's fine because of this. And then you see all these trusted people say, no, that's okay. And you're like, okay. Okay, yeah, we just voted a new definition of integrity. <laughs> yeah, that happens. They pass it along upstairs. Yes. They know that this form of lying is okay. I, I think I think I can't I cannot understate the importance of a culture that is fighting against that. Yes, it is so important, and um, and it has to be a priority, right? The the, the the thing is, it has to be the top priority. And yes. if it, if it isn't, then then what is your top priority? And my experience is that that the culture, the people are going to lean into whatever their top priority is. And I don't <laughs> think it takes very long into a culture to realize if that's integrity, gratitude. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay, so you were attracted to that. And it was. Then, and then from there, that's why you came and worked with us. That's not why you became an entrepreneur. So what happened? That's true. Um, so along the way, you know, I sold for three years, as you know, with you. Um, and then I was kind of getting to the point where I was going to graduate. I was looking at what to do uh, for my future. You know, so I was interviewing around. I interviewed with Enterprise. You know, back then they had that great management training program. And um I had a couple friends that were going out and starting their own businesses, uh, several of them being also pest control. And I remember so back then they were encouraging me to go do that. They were recommending I go. They, they were even saying, hey, I'll teach you how to do it. I'll show you how to do it uh, for free. Come come do this with me and then go do your own and all that kind of stuff. And I, I know I mentioned that to you. And as, as I started talking with you about it, um, you brought up to me that there were some opportunities here to go explore that entrepreneurial uh, mindset, go grow a business, uh, but under your, under your mentorship, your stewardship. Um, and so for me, I, as I was weighing back that decision and back then, you know, I feel like right now what Moxie has become, there's a lot of strong, clear evidence that like, this is the place to be, uh, I believe. And um, back then, you were the evidence, <laughs> right? More than because, right? It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a whatever million dollar business back then. It was smaller, but it was sure. you. And so, you know, going back to that, that in investment advice that maybe is often heard and in, you invest in people more than you do ideas. Yeah. Um, I just, I wanted to be around you. I wanted to be influenced by you. I wanted to, I liked who I was becoming under your tutelage and, I just felt that if I could marry that with the financial goal and 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 then be with some right like be with someone your track record I mean even at that time had spoken for itself yeah and um oh yeah I I think you're only now even doing you know you're doing podcasts now and everything but like you are you are the who's who of anything that's good that's come from door to door in my opinion uh, making, you you would you make me blush. yeah you would never say that but that's that's how i feel and I've, I've met a lot of people i know a lot of people that own businesses in our industry like there's no one i'd want to be attached to more than more than you um and so for me as i was making those decisions like that was a really that was a really clear choice for me it was an easy choice to make at the time um because of that 
So I, I think that again, because for me, I'm investing in who I'm becoming, right? And I think that that is uh, online, Instagram. I hear a lot of advice. When I hear the good advice, it's always go build a skill set. It's go be patient. Go be grateful for your situation. Go work really hard. It's not talking about the money side so much because that is the stuff that tends to come, you know? Yeah. Um, anyways, so making that decision to go become something with you, um, probably one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. So, well, thank you. And yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I know it was a great decision for me because <laughs> I love you. I love working with you. And uh, I've often said that one of the great greatest things about being an entrepreneur, if not my favorite thing, is that you you have you have a lot of say in in who you work with on a daily basis. You don't have full say because you can make offers, and plenty of great people have told me no. Yeah. But uh, but working with people like you, uh, you certainly as an entrepreneur have veto authority over it. How about that? Yeah. But but uh, but working with you has just has just been a, a real treat. Thanks. So so you decided to move to Virginia, and you just spoke of patience and sacrifice and learning. You took a big pay cut, and you moved into the ghetto. So there you are. <laughs> yeah, I there did. you are, in Virginia. There's shootings outside your apartment, and uh, and and uh, t- tell me how it how it was getting started. Oh my gosh, I remember um, one of my favorite stories of opening up, and I don't even remember if I even if I even I probably shared this with you. Who knows? So I remember going out there. One of the challenges you have when you're finding an office space to go open a business, right? We'd done the recruiting. We had, I mean, our first year, I had 25 guys coming out. So nothing too crazy at the time. Um, and going and finding our office, we're storing pesticides in a warehouse and you have to get the proper licensing to even be able to do that. Yeah. So at the time, um, I was trying to get approval to go do that. And I remember that nobody would approve me. Like they did, It's like no one in the government understood what I was asking, what I needed, and they didn't understand even their own rules. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to be proactive. I'm just going to go straight to the fire marshal. So I went and he wouldn't take an appointment with me. So I went and sat in the lobby and I, and I looked him up online and I just was waiting for him to walk in the door. So this guy walked in the door and I went up to him. I had all my, all my chemical labels and everything. And I, and I shared with him and I said, Hey, I need to get this stuff stored. Here's the laws as I understand them. I really, I really need to talk to you about this because I have I'm trying to open my business, right? And he was very irritated that I had bothered him, of course. And he took my stuff and he looked at it and he goes, when, when do you want to open again? And I said, oh yeah, in two weeks. And he says, yeah, you're not opening in six months. You got to go get a chemist. You have to break all this stuff down. And and he, and he, and he listed like this, all this stuff that would, you know, and I, I have, I've at this point, remember, I didn't come for money. I had already borrowed six figures from you to go open this business. So I'm on the hook for, you know, all that. I have people coming out in two weeks and I have to like start this business. So I'm sitting there wondering what to do. And I said, well, I got to be proactive. So I literally, the next morning I woke up and because I can't call, it's not like, you know, the Virginia law, you know how to open a business, but you don't know the laws there. And that's my job, right? Well, like the one thing I taught you is that also <laughs> most people in the government also don't know the laws there. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so I, the next morning I woke up early. I went to the library. I pulled the, the building codes and the fire codes. And for 16 hours, I read all of them. I read all of them pertaining to what I needed to know. And I became the subject matter expert on fire marshal code and law and pesticide storage in Fairfax County in Virginia. Like, because you had to. I'm the expert. Yeah, 100%. And what I learned in doing that, now that I knew the law, I just knew exactly what to do. So I went, I made the book, I did it, I scheduled the inspection, and I told them why I was storing my pesticide there. And I was so confident in it that they 
and I was right that they just signed me off, but they didn't even look at what I had prepared. They just took what I said because it was clear that I knew more than they did. Yeah. Um, and then we opened. That's so one thing I remember <laughs> is that you, you didn't drive a very nice car. Yeah. And I remember that for more years than we want to admit right here in this discussion, you had many, many, many people that work for you that made a lot more than you did. Oh yeah. For a long time. I, yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe, I would, I, at still. least I would, I would, yeah, it's still some of the case, but yeah. Um, I'd say at least seven, eight years yeah. uh, of opening the business. I continually chose to defer that and reinvest everything in. And I, I think that's probably, that's what you have to do. I mean, to go make a business work. Yeah. I mean, it depends the more you're trying to scale it and the, you know, there's some other things that kind of come into that equation. Depends how much you were making beforehand, what the opportunity cost yeah. you know, of your money is, but I find more and more with young entrepreneurs of people who want to come into ownership, they say, I want to make, I want all the ownership, but I want to start, I want no risk. And I want to make seven <laughs> figures out of the gate. And yeah, that's, that's the common problem is I, yeah. I think, I don't know that people understand what that, what that means to go open a business and go run that. I mean, when I look, when I look back at that, I mean, I had, I have a four kids now at the time I had all three kids while living. I, I had purchased a foreclosed condo that, as you described, not in a very nice, I wouldn't even let my, my salesman sell there. Yeah. Um, and you know, paid off student loans all at the same time while making almost no money to go grow up, to have that opportunity right. one day. Um, yeah. And I think, I think people, I don't think people understand that that's what you need to go do. They do come in and they kind of want that different expectations. Let me plug into your your system, benefit from that, take no risk and own it all. That's kind of an interesting an interesting thought. But I I've found that that's not that's just not how it works. Yeah. So uh, so several years you're in Virginia, you're growing your business, things are going well, and then at some point I remember you coming to me saying, "Gosh, I want to open a second branch. What do you think?" Yes, I. Uh, I, it was 2012. I remember coming to you and, you know, we had, we had done more than I ever thought. I mean, my original goal, if you remember was, Hey, maybe let's go get, you know, 5,000 accounts and 6,000 was yeah, the goal. If I, if I could make 300 grand a year, that I thought that would be, I mean, that's more than my, my mind could have comprehended at the time. Um, Everyone says that and Oh yeah, no, but and once people get there, you only see the next level, and so you were no different. So you got your six thousand accounts. Yep, and uh, got to where you could have made three hundred grand, but you said no. Let's. I said let's go. Let's, let's go open it. again. Yeah, let's invest. And so we we decided to go open in Dallas um, that next summer. And I remember at the time, you know, if we were going to go open one, you wanted to go. You're like, well, if we're going to do this, let's put on some more accounts there. Um, and so we did. Um, in 2013, we opened in Dallas. And I, I often refer to this as my million-dollar mistake, my million-dollar education, because I remember at the time, you were also kind of helping me understand, hey, when you go make that choice, look at what it does to your time. Look at what you're choosing, right? What are your inputs and your outputs that you're going to be doing into that and make sure that's what you really want? What I was, what I was saying is that when you start to scale a business, and you're an entrepreneur the way you are. You're not you're you're not taking on extra capital, or if it was it was for me anyway. Then um, you only have so much time that you're able to spend with your family, and the rest of your time you're putting into your business, which in your case was there in Virginia, making an exceptional business, which you were doing. And now you're going to take the limited amount of time that you have, maybe some more time from your business that's making it great, and you're going to put it into this other location where you have to hire management for it because they're not there. And there's no way they're going to run it as well as you are. And so then what, what I was saying happens is you're going to get a much lower margin on that second plate uh, business 
Plus, if it takes too much of your time for your core business, you may lose what you're doing great here and 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 do worse financially with your core business. And maybe you just open that second location and collectively you're actually also making less money and you sacrificed all of your marginal time with your family. So that's the discussion we had is just <laughs> saying, let's just to realize that that beginning of that scaling process can be painful until you get qualified managers in place. What did you learn from that process of opening a second branch of what you called your million dollar investment? By that, I think you were saying it cost you a million dollars literally to learn hard lessons. Yeah, I some of the biggest things that I learned was uh, well, number one, at my time I was literally flying one week Virginia, one week Dallas, and that was coming off of a recruiting season where I was home probably three four days in January, February, and March. So each month home three four days to go do the recruiting because I didn't have the the management yet at that time. Yep. Um, and then going and training a branch manager who had been trained for six seven months. So now I'm flying one week one week. I mean I'm there setting up desks. I'm helping right doing all these things. Um, and I definitely learned there has to be, I remember my lesson was I will never open a branch this way again. I remember feeling that. And, um, and then my next thing that came to my mind was there, there just has to be a better way. Like, how do you do that? And that led to, that's what led to innovations at the time that people weren't doing. So like at the time we had a call center in each of our locations, right? Now I have one call center. Again, I know today that seems obvious, but technology. I mean, back then that, that wasn't, no one was doing that. And so making choices to consolidate some of those things and streamline your training and go scale the business, that that pain caused that innovation, which led to the backbone upon which everything else has come. So you keep progressing and moving forward. And um, let me ask you this first, like during that period of time, what was the hardest part for you as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I think that it was... Um, I think it was, there's this point where you're like the person that is the reason that everything works <laughs> and helping that so that you have more people, one layer, two layers down that own that like you would. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think that is every time you want to push that ownership down another level, I feel like that is the hardest part, figuring that out. Um, because if, because during the time when it's not figured out, that's extremely painful. It's extremely painful because it means you are still owning it. You're still wearing the 32 hats. And so you have to, you're having to make your processes, your people, your comp structure, everything so that it aligns everyone to think and act like you would yeah. in those situations. And that is a very painful process when you're inventing it. So there you go. You, you get the processes, you change them, you get the two branches going well. And then at some point you say to me, hey, I want to open more locations. Yeah. we So we took a, one of the things that I actually think was really wise that is super counterintuitive, you know, they, they have a saying too, right? Revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, right? <laughs> so there was a period of time where, you know, I, you financed this. So I borrowed quite a bit of money from you and um, we had grown to, I think we we're probably 12 million in revenue at the time. And you really came in and counseled me, hey, man, I think you should streamline these processes. Let's retire some debt. Let's get really, really good at our, let's double down on the core competencies, right? A pest control. Oh, yeah. Pest so control. What I was saying is why scale something on a sandy foundation? Yes. So we need to be like, why should people buy our service? Let's answer that question. It's because it's going to be the best customer experience, the best pest control service. We're going to have the highest trained people, the best people. That's the highest trained in the office, the highest trained in the field. 
And I don't know that that's where we are to where we should, we can build upon that yet. So it's saying like, let's build a very, very strong foundation of people and of culture, and then let's scale instead of scaling and then try to build a foundation. Yes. So I took, I took two years to do that. And I went hard at that. That was what I was trying to do was to make that foundation sure. Um, so that if, if I wanted to grow, if that made sense, that was something that it would actually make sense. We did a lot of things that, sorry, you did something that not very many people, and at least in our industry, and I think in industry industry would do. And that is the, you kind of said goodbye to sales. So you had this giant sales <laughs> asset that could scale and grow very fast. And most people can't turn that off. They don't have the will to do it. Yeah. And so even though it's the thing that's probably going to choke and kill their business, and in my opinion, we've seen that happening in our industry over and over and over. You had the patience to say, I'm going to turn that off. I'm going to just focus on the core of my business instead of growing at hyper growth rate yes. for two years, right? Yeah, that took that definitely took some willpower because it's just so attractive if you can generate revenue. I mean, you want to keep doing it. I think that a lot of people were really uh, telling you you're being a fool at that time. I think even people within our organization said, you're crazy. Why are you doing that? <laughs> yeah, and it, but it ended up being the right move because it let us focus on the right things. Um, and it really prepared us for everything. If you, you know, when, you, when you're zoomed in, things don't make sense. The more you zoom out on the timeline, you start to see how that it wouldn't have worked if we didn't do that. No, a hundred percent. And yeah. so that that led us to that point where, um, you know, I kind of I remember coming to you specifically and saying, "Hey, we're at twelve million right now. I I think in five years I can get this to be twenty, thirty million. Yeah, and I remember I just, that. I remember you pausing and looking at me and being like, "Hey, no, the it's a hundred million." And I just I remember my whole paradigm just shattered because I I had not even considered first off. One of the things that's really cool about an entrepreneurship discovery, like when you're doing that, is unfolding your potential, having that unlocked, right? And discovering, oh my gosh, like I'm, am I capable of more? What else am I capable of, right? That's a fun, one of the things I love about this job and I've loved about being here, I've loved about owning these businesses is that it is continually unlocking layers of potential in me that, you know, left to my own devices. I wonder if I would, I wonder if I ever would. So that was one of those moments for me where here I am thinking this is the potential and then you saying, no, 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 the potential is, you know, 5X that. Yeah. We're building a foundation for something different. Yeah. Yes. And, and and that 100 million mark for you is just going to be next year, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, and there you go. So, I mean, we went from 12 to 80 million in four summers. I mean, that's that's amazing. And After we took two years to build the foundation. Yeah. And 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 that the, the nexus for that was you just asking a different question. Yeah. Which is amazing. And you being phenomenal executing and passionate about what you're doing yeah. and principle centered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Everything, everything flowed out of that. So, so what were the challenges that you ran into in some tips you'd given scaling a business specifically from, and be specific if you're talking about scaling in the beginning where you went from, you know, three or four million to 12 million versus going from 12 million to eight to what's going to be 8 yeah. million. I feel like I probably have more mistakes to share than wins. <laughs> so learnings, right? But and that's probably what it's all about. Great. So I think number one would be don't forget the the fundamentals. Like don't forget those. Because one of the things that I didn't anticipate is there's always a better way. There's always the better way to, to that you think you're trying to innovate and improve and make something better. And you can get to the point where you're trying to do all these cool, new, fancy things that like you forgot. Oh, we used to train people every day on how to talk to a customer, that interaction, that was like a priority. But now because we're doing these other things, somehow that became less of a priority. And if that isn't right, none of this other stuff matters. So I would say don't like, it's old school John Wood and like, don't forget the fundamentals actually, yeah. just stick to that. 
because if you do, it's going to work. Yeah. So that, that for me, that was a huge lesson learned. I'm, I'm, I'm being reminded every year to go that. So I'm checking that frequently going back um, and trying to make sure that we're doing that. So to be clear, advice that I give entrepreneurs is that when they're going to create the vision of what their brand is, they have to be able to answer the question. Why should any given customer choose my good or service over my competitor's good or service? You have to be doing something better than anyone else. You have to have a good answer. You have to do everything better than everyone else. You have to have a reason why people are going to choose you. That doesn't mean all customers are going to choose you, but the ones who care about that, they're going to choose you. Whether it's that you're the, you're the cheapest, whether you're the, you're the coolest, whether you're the most responsive, you're the fastest, whatever it is, know what your brand position is and then be... Don't forget it. Vigilant about <laughs> that and not letting a competitor outflank you and take your brand position. And I think what you're saying is it's you can that. start focusing on other <laughs> stuff and then all of a sudden you're you're actually nothing. You don't have a value proposition of why people should use you. Yeah, I uh, is exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yep, don't forget your brand position. Yeah, and so. then and then be absolutely vigilant. Like vi like extremely persistently vigilant on making sure that you're filling that niche or that need. Yeah. I I think Covey, You're great at that by I, the way. I think Covey expressed that as don't get caught up in the thick of thin things. <laughs> right? Yeah. I I think I think avoiding that at all costs. So um, what was the other question that you had asked? It was, what are the things I've learned scaling? Yeah, what I said, what advice oh. do you have about scaling? And, and I think you're answering that question by either saying, uh, here's mistakes that I made, which is great. Yeah. Or, or hey, here's some things that I would tell people to do. I, I would, yeah. Another thing I would say too, when it comes to scaling your business is, especially if you're the entrepreneur, you have to have a very clear vision. And you have to always be selling that all the time, all the time, because it's so easy to forget. It's so easy for people to forget. So I sometimes feel like I'm on repeat. I mean, I just I just took the last five weeks and a part of a part of remembering our brand position was I went to every branch in 30 days and every two days was a different branch. And I trained the field experts. I trained the salesmen. And I went out in the field. I went in the field with them. And I gave I gave a training that I put together just reminding everyone our vision. I trained on that 19 times. Over and over and 19 over. 19 times in how many days? Uh, in less than 30. In different locations. Yeah. Okay. And di with different groups all across yep. the company. Different um, departments within each location. Yes. And yep. and the message has to be there. It has to be consistent. It has to be a vision that people can get behind. And don't forget that. Don't. You can't. You go three months without selling your vision. Uh, rest be assured people are working on a different vision. When do you sell the vision for entrepreneurs? Uh, all all the time. Oh, sorry. It's in it's in every moment. It's in every interaction. Every 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 interaction is an opportunity to pull back to the to the vision, to the mission, to all of it. It starts when maybe in your ad for employment. <laughs> it it continues when people walk in your office. They should be able to feel and already be influenced by what your vision is and your brand identity. The interview process should be laden thick so that you're trying to repel people. Who are, who are not going to buy into that vision and attract those who are. Yeah. And it shouldn't be that people could ever advance within your organization unless well, that, a, until they buy into that vision and and advancement should be contingent on their ability to execute it and to sell that vision in every direction, right? Agreed, 100%. Yeah. That's easier to say than do. It is, yeah. yeah. It requires, again, you have to be also clearly bought in your own The vision. entrepreneur is the vision holder. Yep. Is the vision holder so like that that people are that everyone beneath is feeding that vision from from the entrepreneur. I'm not saying the entrepreneur isn't influenced by the people they work with. I mean, you and I, on many occasions, have been influenced by a lot of the phenomenal employees that we've had that have helped to advance our vision. But you're still the vision holder. 
Yep. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I think that's one of the things that you do best. What are common mistakes that you see that entrepreneurs make? Yeah. I think that um, one of the things I think the biggest one of all is that they're impatient. I And what I mean by that is I think that sometimes people don't like carry something the distance because they're so, they want to make the money now. They want to, they're not patient. They're not willing to, I mean, are you willing to go work for five to 10 years to go build out your vision to allow that then to, you know, one day give you that reward. I think a lot of people don't have the patience for that or the discipline. Yeah. I've noticed that, that a lot of people tend to be more focused on saying I'm an entrepreneur and going and making a buck and then doing an Instagram post showing their entrepreneur than actually building something of value. Yeah. I found I, it's actually funny because I, when I think of Instagram, I think about that a lot. Like I find a lot of the people that are actually doing it, they're actually so busy doing it that they're, they haven't getting around to getting Instagram to tell everybody that they're an entrepreneur is like the lowest priority. Yeah. Right. And so, um, and I do see a lot of people who haven't actually built anything yet that are out there telling everyone about all the stuff that they're building. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of interesting. I think it's really, really funny how a lot of the people who coach out there, if you, when you look into what they've actually done or built, it's nothing. And I, and I don't understand. I don't understand why people listen to people who have actually never gone and done it. And so, I mean, think of all the people we've worked with over the years that, that have said, all I want to do is go be a coach and teach people, consult them and how to, and how to run their companies. But yeah. they, they have no intention of ever even going and working in or running a company. I think I heard Ed Milet say recently, um, I met him recently. I thought he was just an amazingly warm, genuine person, but he said something I really agree with. And he said, you should look into the people that you're choosing as your mentors. And if more than 5% of their revenue is coming from the mentoring process, <laughs> instead of being a doer, yeah. you should find somebody else. Oh, that's, I think that's a lot of wisdom. That's in that. brilliant advice. Yeah. That's amazing. I agree with that. I like the idea of being a true operator, yeah. like operate and run businesses. I think that's, that's something I gravitate towards. I like doing the work. I like being in it. I love being that. So that would be the second thing I think they fail to do is they just fail, they fail to love the process. Like actually like it. Do you like doing that work? Do you like grinding that out? I think that if you can find your passion in doing that work, it's gonna be it's gonna work out. It's gonna be great. What's one or two of the of the of the biggest mistakes you're willing to share with us that you've made as an entrepreneur? Jeez, um, I well, I'd say the first one was opening Dallas when I did and how I did. Um, I I I really do believe that that put. That was a million dollar mistake at a time that I hadn't made a million dollars yet. So um, I wish I had I had had the foresight to think that out, plan that, do a better first creation, actually have a better first creation, yeah. and put a little more wisdom into that plan. I think some of those pitfalls could have been avoided. And um, the good news is um, I only had to do that mistake once to to never do it again. Yeah, and and then learn from that. So. Um, that was definitely a mistake. Um, I would say I don't I don't have any regrets with any of it because I, anytime I do something wrong, I I just go turn it into my education and and then I go I don't do it again. You capitalize on it. Mistakes are your are, are are your best friends. Yeah, because they're honest. Uh, I had my sister on on the podcast recently, and she said, um, "Clarity is kindness." That was one of her core values. Hmm. And I think that mistakes uh, teach us with some clarity. Yeah, and, and then that's why I think that there's kindness in it. What are some other mistakes that, that you think you've made as an entrepreneur that you can help others avoid? Yeah, I think that um, 
I think my, my second biggest mistake was waiting to become a financial expert in the books of my business until four or five years in. Yeah. That was a huge mistake because if you don't understand when and how you're making every dollar of margin, if you don't actually know that, then you can find yourself in multiple situations where you never actually made money. You worked for free forever. Yeah. I mean, and, and so I would encourage people, you know, in the beginning, you're so, you're so trying to chase revenue so that you have a business. But as, as quickly as you can, you need to know where your dollars are coming from. And the better you know your numbers, the wiser all your other decisions will be. Um, and I'm, yeah, I'm grateful that I took the, I, eventually I took the time to do that and be, became an expert in that, became an expert in financial forecasting. I, I'm not trained in that. I just became that. I went and found business owners that would open their books to me, that would share their processes with me so that I could go build my own. Um, and that really, once we did that, that really also changed the direction of the company because we could make really smart investments. Also allows us to gamify, right? Yeah. So like it allows us to gamify and people can have ownership over different charts of accounts, if you will. Yeah. So the, the people can in the organization can take complete ownership over these different line items on the financial statements and then you can make a game out of it. And, and I know that that's something that you've done extremely well. And I just want to say that's also really fun. Yeah. Right. Is that not for me? That's one of the funnest things that we do in our business is is gamifying the financial aspect of it. I think our people love it. Yeah, it, it, I it, love it. It makes it fun. Everyone wants to come and play a game, and they want to win at that game. And the better you can be at helping people play fun, good games that are aligned with business objectives. Yeah. Um, the more you're going to have a successful business. One of the most simple things that I think are almost in all books that say if if you want a particular metric to improve, then track it, and if you want <laughs> it to improve more, then track it more publicly and more frequently, and um, Everyone has their own interpretation of what that means and they implement it in different ways. I think most businesses and most entrepreneurs actually, even when they think they're doing a good job in that thing, mm -hmm. they're not. They're not, they're not even close to doing a good job in that thing. And once you sort of like figure that out and learn how to actually really make that an integral part of actually your daily process has to do with how you're managing your financial statements and gamifying things like that, then um, at least I've known from us that's unlocked just a tremendous amount of power. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. And the moment you stop playing that game, that thing stops working. Yeah. And the bigger you get, the 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 more you're at risk of just going out of business if you don't really know. I mean, because like when you're when you're a million dollar company and you're looking at your expenses and you're off by 5%, that's 50 grand, you know, when you know, we're we're a 200 million dollar company. So if you're off your expenses by 5%, that's 10 million. So you better have 10 million in cash sitting there. Yep. You know, to cover your needs because you can't you can't turn to your employees and say, well, I'm not going to pay you this month just because some people were late on paying their bills. So you understand. Yeah, that does not work. Yeah. When it comes time to pay the expenses, they're due. And when it comes time to collect your cash, you know, you better make sure you're getting it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, as entrepreneurs, we, we often have a lot of things happen that are not in the forecast or just yeah, either whether it's family situations or the economy. I'm I'm curious if you share with us how COVID that we did not have in the plan, how that affected you <laughs> in your life. Yeah, I think that um, it's kind of interesting because there was that moment, there was that like 60 day window where I don't think anyone really knew what was going to happen. Um, you know, I it, it was really unclear at the time, at least for me. Were, you know, were we even going to have a business? I mean, were, were, what would happen if you couldn't treat your customers' homes for 90 days? And right, I mean that 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 concept is 
That's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and then, you know, you add that into the context as, as a business owner, you know, I've, I've also continued to invest in the bit, right? We both have for all these years. So now we're, you know, we're, we're 12 years in building branches together and we reach a moment where you're wondering if that business will exist in 90 days. Yep. So I, I, I remember very specifically, um, it was like a powerful moment for me. I remember going to my wife and just saying, Hey, we just built a home. You know, we are, we built our dream home. We, we spent two years doing that and moved in two months before COVID hit. And I just remember sitting down with her is because, and the cool thing too, one thing I love about my wife is like, this is an us thing. Like this business is not a me thing. Like she, we, our goals are together. Our dreams are together. Like we built this together and I'm very much supported in that because it is our thing. She was certainly sacrificing when you weren't, you know, the hard times. So yeah, yeah. Kelsey's amazing. She, she's awesome. But yeah, it is, and, a, it is a wee thing when you're doing entrepreneurship. Yes, 100%. So I remember sitting down with her and saying, hey, I, I, I need us both to be open to the idea that in 90 days, we actually don't, you know, all my cash at the time is tied up in the business. So like, we may not have a business. We may be going into an apartment and I may be out knocking doors, just doing whatever it takes to make money for our family in this situation. And... I remember that moment for us just kind of um, first, you have that feeling you grieve the, you grieve the loss of what you felt you built or whatever that was going to be for you. And then it went from, well, if I'm starting over and I'm starting over with nothing, the thought, oh man, I got to do that again. And then this paradigm switched for me where I was like, oh, that actually sounds kind of fun going in and just doing all that, doing that again. That sounds awesome. And I got excited about the idea of starting over. And then I thought, well, if I'm really excited about my worst case scenario, then I'm just going to, what can I do right now to go all, because, because only two things are going to happen. Either this is going to work out and we're going to go kick butt even with COVID or we're going to lose everything. And I'm kind of excited about that. So I'm going to go all in right now. So <laughs> Either way, put your shoulder to the wheel. Yeah, exactly. And so that, that, that switch, that was like a light switch. From there, everything unfolded and we started reaching out to like, you know, the Virginia State Secretary of Commerce, finding ways to become an essential business, finding ways to get door-to-door sales, of, like getting any any evidence that that was okay to go do so that we could move forward um, and have, you know, because we had 500 sales reps that were going to come out and all depending on us. I have all these employees. I mean, at the time, 300 operational employees depending on us for paychecks. And I'm, you know, my thought was, well, then we're going to, if we're going out, we're going out with a bang. We're going to go do what we can to do this do this the right way and make it work. Um, and and it did. I mean, we found the path through. It ended up being our best year we ever had, you know, <laughs> which is amazing. That was that's crazy. Crazy to think that. Yeah, it really was wild times. And, and we also kept employing people. We did. You know, when we we didn't know if revenue would be coming in. And in a lot of cases, a lot of us were employing people. We didn't actually have a job for them to do. Yeah. And that was, uh, I think that that was a you know, touching, reaching into our core values. I do. I think that, that was hard too. Yes. Our people, I mean, I, they were concerned, right? Yeah, where, where are right? they going to have a paycheck in the next sure. two weeks? And I think that, um, I think the loyalty too, that we got there because yeah. we should know things are a little unsettling right now, but we're not, we're here. Uh, I think that spoke volumes to them and it for sure aligned with the mission of our, you know, to improving the lives of our customers, our team and our community. So now you're clearly a very successful entrepreneur, accomplished, respected. People know who you are in the industry. What 
other side investments do you do you choose to do or make? I mean, I mean, I know a lot of people come to us and say, "What other things are you doing and investing in?" And how about you? Yeah, I've got um, I've done a couple things. I've got some real estate holdings. Um, I have, you know, I've got a brother who started an energy company. I have a small percentage of that. Yeah. Um, but you know, I actually get asked this question a lot. A lot of people come to me and they say, "Hey, you know, what are you what are you investing in?" Because they're, I can tell their mindset is, "Oh, if." if you have like 20, 30 different investments going, you, then you must really know what you're doing. And I, and I go and I, I actually tell them, I say, Hey, you know, my, my main investment, like 95% of it is, it's actually pest control. And they're like, well, well, why, why would you do that? And I just say, Oh, just cause of math, you know, just actual math. <laughs> and then I kind of confused for a moment. Not calculus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not, 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 not calculus, not even algebra, just actually just line level math, you know, that you learn in fifth grade. And I just said, I've just found that, you know, I know a lot of you guys are talking about doing crypto and getting a hundred X gain. I just found that that when I invest in myself and I invest in my business, I can, I control those gains. I can go do that, and I found this to recurringly become over and over again, literally the best investment that I fully control, which is amazing. Here, here, yeah, you've done. I mean, I, I, I same thing to you. I imagine. I think we talked about this a little bit. Where I think you feel the same way. Yeah, I wanted to put money in crypto, and I know we had some of our <laughs> employees who were making money hand over fist in crypto. But when you're an entrepreneur and you, 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 you're thinking of what your capital requirements are of the future, you can't put that into risky investments because if if in six months things turn on you and you have a cash call, you can't say, "Well, I just lost forty percent of my money in the market," but don't worry, it'll rebound. Here's how it works. I mean, like you just can't do that, right? And so. Um, so I, I I watch people make their gains in things like crypto and other things, and I think that you couldn't really control that. I mean, I understand that you're betting on it, but you you can't control that. Yeah. And I I think you and I are cut out of the same cloth that way. And I certainly will invest in things, but the huge bulk of the investment is, are in the things that I can control. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think going deep into the thing that you're the subject expert matter in um, is a wise is a wise choice. I think that that's when I look at really successful entrepreneurs, I find them doing that. I don't, I don't, right. They go really, really deep into their main thing. And then later on that turns into other things, but. Yeah. You have the, you have the entrepreneurs that just want to be an entrepreneur. So they go again, start something just to be an entrepreneur and gain experience. I'm not knocking that, but there's also the entrepreneur that, that does that from the book outliers, the 10,000 hour rule where they come and truly become a, a world expert in something Yeah, and then keep doing that. And I think that's the point where, where, where you are. And so you're really, really good at what you're doing. You're seasoned by all kinds of experiences. You've seen hardship. You've done it in good economies, bad economies. And you understand how those things affect your specific business and your industry. And that's that's pretty valuable. It's, yeah. it's, it's to, so to go risk it in something you don't know. I mean, I'll say sometimes like, look, I may want to play uh, football and be an offensive lineman for, for the Seattle Seahawks. But, <laughs> but if you put me out there on the offensive line, you know, it's probably it may not go that well, and I'm going against people who who have trained very very hard over a long period of time, and I might get beat up and I might lose yeah. and get embarrassed. And the same thing goes in business. When you're going into business and you start competing against people who really know what they're doing, um, uh, again for young entrepreneurs especially, that'll beat you up a, a good bit, and you'll learn and you'll toughen up and you'll 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 it'll help prepare you. 
but uh, you have already done that, and now you're now you're one of the uh, intimidating defensive linemen. <laughs> I love that. Have you ever done the math on how many hours you have in this industry? I have. How many? I'm, I'm not going to admit it because it, it reflects to my age. But I, 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 I more than more than qualify for the ten thousand hour rule. Yeah, I think a couple times over. I, I think that's awesome. Uh, so here we are. Next year, you're going to hit the hundred million mark. What excites you as you look to the future? Man, I I feel like I'm just getting started. I I you are. It, it's so interesting how each new level it's just a whole new array of opportunities. Yeah. And so I I think the I think the future for what I'm doing here has never been brighter. I think there's never been more opportunity on the table. I feel like what I you we are about to go do in the next 5 to 10 years will eclipse any of the things that we've actually already like done. And to be able to do that I think my favorite thing, you know, and you've mentioned it a couple of times when you talk about principle centeredness, like I, I like who I am and who I'm becoming when I do that in this structure with these people, with these core values in this way. I like the people that I'm working with when they're buying into that culture. Um, and it makes me feel like in addition to all the opportunity that's there, that like, that's one of the greatest joys of my life. I, I feel like People will spend their whole lives trying to find something like that, that they that they can create, that they can build, that creates that for them. And I can't think of anything else I could be more excited than to be in that, chasing these opportunities with those people. That's our mission, right? To improve the quality of life for, for everyone involved. And we do that through principle-centered living, principle-centered teaching, and from being relentless about providing value to customers. To, to When the day comes, or if it ever came, where I felt like I was not surrounded by a team that was principle-centered and really committed as the highest priority to being principle-centered and to providing the highest value of service to customers. I just wouldn't even want to do it. Yeah, I would have no desire to do <laughs> it. it. I've, had, it. I've had different investors come in and say, have you ever thought of going off to this low-cost provider strategy? I have no interest in it. And they're like, but you can make, I have no interest in it. Yeah. But I don't want to do that. I just have no desire whatsoever to want to do that. I mean, there's a lot of things I don't want to do. I don't want to swim in a pool filled with gasoline either. I just don't want to do it. And I don't I don't want to do something other than work in a principal center environment surrounded by people like Tim Hedrick, who make me feel peer pressure to be a better human being in, in every way that's aligned with true principles. And um, that's just one of the things that I... I love most about you, Tim, is that you've really enriched my life, the lives of our family, um, in and you you continue to do it in small things that that maybe only you and I know about. So well, thanks, so you know, I love you, yeah. appreciate you. Love you too, man. I, I feel the same way as you know. It's just sort of funny because we had one of those meetings actually just before this where we were talking about <laughs> like the vision of the next level, and and we're not pr- public with that yet, but it's kind of exciting, right? It's really exciting. Yeah. So yeah, thanks so, for having me on. I appreciate it. Yep. Let's go do those things together. Okay, sounds great.